0: Ray, right, could you please turn with me to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Something remarkable is going to happen tonight. I'm going to preach half a chapter of a New Testament text. And the date on the calendar will remain the same. Um, hey. Right. The Apostle Paul is encouraging, uh, encouraging his son to in faith Timothy to stay the course of ministry, to stay the course, to continue amidst opposition, continue To continue amidst opposition, to continue amidst false teaching, and Paul is doing this from jail. These are his last words, the last written words of the Apostle Paul. And the entire—the reason why we're looking at this entire second half of uh, Second Timothy chapter two—is because it deals with something of the the same subject, and that is that the the church and the Christian, as a believer, will find themselves constantly in a battle against error, and so we must pursue God's truth that leads to godliness. I'm calling this message... A long, uncatchy phrase. Truth for life and godliness amidst error. Because that's what he's trying to say. That's what Paul's saying. There's error, there's truth, and we must take stock and discern because some errors lead to unrighteousness and real ungodliness. Let's read these words here, starting in verse uh, fourteen of Second Timothy chapter 2. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those That are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of the living God. Paul starts by saying, remind them of these things. And therefore, so often, he's pointing you back to what he's just said. And he's just, what has he just said? He said that if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he's pointing them the, uh, to Timothy, and he's saying, remind them, the leaders in the, the church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is is pastoring, remind them of these things. Let them let them know repeatedly these truths. These truths about the gospel that if we have died with Jesus Christ, we will now live with Him. If we, you know, it's the language of baptism. We belong to Him. We've been purchased by Him. Now we we live uh, for Him. Let them know. Let them know that in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this is the only hope. It's the only hope. And so he then begins to talk about truth and error. And there are some aspects that are directly for Timothy and there are some that are just very clearly for the church and for individual Christians as well. But in the middle of this text... There's discussion about vessels, vessels, two kinds of vessels. And in these days, when this was written, you had two kinds of vessels in your house. If You had silver and gold vessels, perhaps. What are you going to put on those? I'm just making sure we all understand this, right? I'm, some of you know where I'm going with this, right? What do you do with you? You put, you put food on them, and maybe you put nice uh, you put nice foods on them, and you uh, you use them as decorative sort of vessels, plates, and so on and so forth, and buckets, and maybe you have got a vase for flowers. I don't know if that was a thing, um, but then he says you've got those are vessels for honorable use, and then he says those vessels for dishonorable use, and those will be made out of cheaper substances. They're not as good, and you would be using those for garbage, household waste, and excrement. That's the language. This is in the Bible. And he said, so you've got vessels for honor and vessels for for dishonorable use. And there's two kinds of vessels in a great house. And so often when Paul's speaking about the house, he's using it as an illustration. He does so in 1 Timothy 3, he does so in Ephesians. He's speaking of the household, he's speaking of the church. That in this great house, there are two kinds of vessels. And he's going to drive towards be a vessel for honorable use. What's a vessel for honorable use? It's useful to the master of the house, set apart, ready for every good work. That's what he's driving at. And on the other side of this is falsehood, the dishonorable garbage vessels. It's quite funny. I wonder if Paul ever did that. And he goes to a false teacher and says, dishonorable vessel, garbage. You know, in the writings of Martin Luther, he definitely said this. I've read it in The Bondage of the Wolf. He talked, he called someone a privy pot. I mean, think about what that is. Um... And so, he's Paul speaking about, I want to look at error and then I want to look at truth. Because it's not just error and truth for the sake of arguing over error and truth. It's, it's error and its results and truth in its results. Irreverent babble. Avoid it. He says in verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. All right? Discussion that's not according to Godliness it's irreverent it's against god it's perhaps uh- it's, dis- it's chatter that distracts from that which will advance us in in righteousness it's error it's it's speculations now I will say this contemplative theology when we think about who God is and we we uh Meditate upon truths. It's kind of fallen out of fashion in many ways in the church in the last hundred years because it's viewed as not practical. It's a form of worship to think upon who God is and to, to remind ourselves of, of truth and to just think upon His, His glory and His wonder. But, there's a bit of a danger in that so often these days we want everything that we talk about to be practical. It's got to be very, very practical. Otherwise, don't bother telling me. So, we, we recited the Nicene Creed this morning. Do you know what, one of the reasons why we did that? I don't do it because it's cool. I, do, I, I make sure that we do this because we want to be reminded of how the church has historically laid forth truth. Who is God? Who is the Holy Spirit? What's the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And so often, I mean, I think it's Michael Horton paraphrasing him. He's so often, he says, teenagers and young adults walk away from the faith. But have they really actually apostatized? Because they don't actually really know anything. Because it's just practical. Paul's not, when Paul says irreverent babble, he's not talking about remove all talk of theology that does not seem practical. He's speaking specifically about doctrine that pushes us away from God and his character and Christ and the work of the work of the Lord in redemption. Right? That's not irreverent Babel. He uses the word gangrene. So contemplating that God is one God and three persons. Is not irreverent Bab- Babel. And having a discussion about at what point in creation did God ordain that it was okay for Adam and Eve to sin. It might be a bit speculative if you push it too far, but it's not irreverent Babel. He tells us what this is. This is, it spreads like gangrene, it spreads like. T- Let me, watch me tone biblical illustrations down. It's like putting a rotten apple in the fruit bowl. Hymenaeus is mentioned here as someone, you see in verse 17, 18, 19, Hymenaeus, Philetus, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Hymenaeus and. Alexander, who have made a shipwreck of their faith, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's saying, we've put these people out of the church. That's what it means. We handed them over to Satan. We've said, you do not belong because you are an unrepentant heretic. You've swerved from the truth. You don't want to hold to the, the true Christian faith. And so they've been church disciplined by Paul. What, is we, what are we told about this irreverent babble? And believe it or not, I think there are so many cases today in the church where we can have a similar errors to what's being spoken of here. Verse 18, They have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. The resurrection has already happened. What does the, what's the Christian faith say about the resurrection? That Jesus Christ rose from the, the grave, but at the return of Christ, we shall all, believers and unbelievers, be raised for judgment. They're saying the resurrection's already happened. Right now, you are resurrected. Why is this error so bad? They're saying that all of the glories of the end times realities that we, that we hear about in the Christian faith, all the glories are here now. And what do you inevitably do with that? What do you inevitably do with that? Well, you have to say that the resurrection is only spiritual. It's not bodily. It's only spiritual. The resurrection's happened. We've had a spiritual resurrection. Jesus Christ rose. I've risen from the dead. I'm done. And that's it. The body then begins to mean nothing. And because the end times are supposed to be great and glorious at the, at the end, well, then we should be experiencing health, wealth, and prosperity now. And Paul, he's in prison. And what are these people going to be saying about Paul? They'll say, well, look at Paul. He's, he's not living the resurrection life. He's in a Roman prison. He's barely even saved. Listen to us. Listen to us. If the resurrection is, has already occurred, the resurrection is only spiritual, and therefore the body does not matter. And if you believe the body does not matter, what sort of practices are you going to say are okay? I'll play. I'm never actually going to be able to get sexual employment ever again, so it's fine. What sort of practices will be okay? Covetousness. Fornication. All forms of sexual immorality. Homosexuality. Violence. Murder doesn't matter. All that matters is that you've had a spiritual awakening before the Lord. Who cares what you do with your body? The body is low. The spirit is high. That's all that matters, everyone. created. So often we see people creating scriptural interpretations, doctrines, and theologies to enable them to continue on in their pet sins. They're removing the hope of the future. I don't know about you, but my eyes have been open to the Lord. My eyes have been open to the truth of the gospel, but every time I wake up on a Monday morning, I don't feel very resurrected, do you? Overrealized eschatology, eschatology, study of the end times. overrealized we're closer to the end than we actually are. It always crushes you. It always leaves you disappointed. Why am I not experiencing the level of victory that I ought to be? Paul is taking that truth, the truth that these people (laughs) are in error, And he's he's saying that this error here is what leads people away from Jesus, it leads people away from righteousness, and it causes them to do all forms of sin. Paul's doing that here. It might not seem that serious to us, but it is. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. You know, when you remove the true Christian faith, you remove the true gospel of how we come to be reconciled with God and what Jesus Christ is doing, when you remove that, you lay the stage for all manner of ungodliness. That's what Paul's saying. That's the battle here. Things that strike at the heart of the faith. And so Paul's saying avoid, stay away from people that have departed from the Christian faith, don't buy their books. Don't go to their conferences. Don't do it. I'm going to talk about this more at some point. I am very concerned that there are forms of New Age mysticism, pagan sort of spirituality being slipped in alongside Jesus Christ all over the show, in our city. And there are forms of teaching which say that the body does not matter, and you can find this in very conservative churches as well, where the body does not matter it's all about it's all about the spiritual, but they remove the power of God for godliness in this life, and there's really I think actually laying the foundation for an easy jump into sin. Talk about that more at some point, but not tonight. Now, there's a bridge in this text between error and truth, and that bridge is Korah's rebellion. Who knows about that? Not that well known Numbers chapter 16, and I'm pointing to verse 19 in this text, verse 19 in 2nd Timothy chapter 2. Korah's rebellion, very simply, was that there were 250 chiefs and a man by the name of Korah, who was a descendant of Levi in the Old Testament, and they rose up in rebellion. They brought these people, and they rose up in rebellion against Moses, and they rose up in rebellion against Aaron the priest. And there was an attempted takeover of the worship of Israel, attempted takeover of the priestly system. Moses, we don't trust your leadership. You're not doing this right here. We've got a better way. Moses simply trying to obey God. And it was the power of people in rebellion against the law of God. Moses devises a test. You can read about it in uh, Numbers 16. Korah and his rebellion fail. The ground swallows them up. fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Man, I wish that happened at conferences sometimes. Um... um but it was a rebellion marked by pride, a desire for prestige, a desire uh, for a lust after power. And what's this got to do with our text? In verse 19, Paul is quoting from Numbers 16. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. At the end of the day, this is saying, God will separate truth from error. God will separate His people from falsehood. And those who exalt themselves against God and His Word and His way and His Gospel will not stand just like Korah's rebellion. The ground will swallow them up and fire shall consume. That's what Paul's saying. And he says God's people are to depart from iniquity, including greed, power, and lust after pride, which is the, the mother of all sin, And that's an encouragement to Timothy. That's an encouragement to us today. He says, God's truth will win out. We'll get to that at the end. God remains faithful. And so God knows those who belong to Him. And God will set apart those who belong from Him towards righteousness and away from iniquity. He remains faithful. Remember that. And so... Error, Korah's rebellion, and now we come to, to, to truth in this battle. Timothy is told to remind the people of these truths of the wonders of the gospel that we've just looked at in verses 13 and 14, that those who have died Him shall live with Him. Timothy is also told in, in verse 15, he's told, Present yourselves an approved workman. This is a famous verse of preachers, is it not? Pastors and people that that handle the Bible. He's saying work hard to understand the Scriptures. Work hard to lay forth what they say. Work hard to interpret them correctly. Don't be sloppy. Work hard to be heard and understood in what you say. Give it straight and handle them with care. Now, Some teaching is harder to understand than others. Scripture tells us. Not all scripture is as equally clear as other parts, but don't be lazy. That's what he's saying. Don't be lazy, Timothy. Don't rewrite the commentary as a sermon. Don't just take someone else's word for it work. Do you believe that this is about life and death? And this is here's a lesson for us all. Do you take the time to read your Bible? Do you take the time? I'm not telling you you have to read it at 4.30 a.m. in the morning like an elder candidate who puts us to shame. Okay, I'm not a Christian at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, um, I'm not saying that. But says Do you put time into to, to seeking to understand? To, to seek after people that maybe understand a bit more from you and ask them? Questions, to try and find good books and resources. If we believe that this is about life and death and eternal life and eternal death, then we will care. We take time to learn the patterns of sound words. Truth is to spur us on towards godliness. And therefore, it says in verse 22, so flee youthful passion. Some of your Bibles might say, flee youthful lust. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Call on the Lord. Seek His salvation. It's a phrase that shows up at the end of Genesis chapter 4. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Call on the Lord. Seek His salvation. Let all those that call on the Lord for salvation now also depart from that which is sin. Next week, we're going to be talking a lot about the subject of justification by faith alone. That we are made declared righteous before God by faith alone. And I am so tired of people saying that that doctrine, that that truth, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to us. And our sin is given to Him. This wonderful, great exchange. And that we are declared righteous because Jesus Christ was righteous. And we receive this with open hand. We've received this right standing in Jesus Christ by faith. We don't earn it. It doesn't depend on our works. It depends on His work. I'm so tired of people saying that that leads you to live however you want and go be ungodly. I'm so tired of hearing that. Maybe you haven't heard that. God bless you. You don't know how lucky you are. Those who call on the name of the Lord for salvation must also then seek and desire to flee from the things that they needed to be saved from. How obvious is that? Shall we continue to send that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. He expected the objection, but it's stupid. Useful passions impatience, which is so dangerous. I want it now. I will take it by whatever means possible. And I don't want you to look at this verse and think, oh, I need to make myself holy. And that it all depends on you. What Paul's saying here is that you are to cleanse yourself from dishonorable. Use. You are to... Re- what, what, what are you doing? He says, you reject falsehood. And walk in the truth. And Jesus Christ has died for you, and you've received them, and he has set your part. Now live as you are. He's given you his Holy Spirit. You live as you are. It's not ultimately about yourself to make you holy. Your holiness and your desire to live a righteous, holy life ultimately comes in response to what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But what Paul's saying here is be a vessel of honor, meaning Reject these errors that make you depart from the truth. Reject them. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Being secure in Christ. Cleanse yourself from falsehood. I don't need that. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversy which breeds quarrels. That's what it means to not be a vessel of dishonor. Put it away. And fourthly, second 2nd to the last point here, in the, under the truth, under the guise of the truth, correct your opponents with gentleness. There's 24. This is fascinating. In this battle between truth and error, how great, how great the temptation to pick up the world's weapons and just tear each other down. I'm greatly concerned how much we are discipled by watching news media today in politics. And everyone's just tearing and gnashing and othering people, you other person over there on the red team and I'm on the blue team, you're barely human, I hate you. And we do that. It's not what he says here. He says he says he says Don't fight like the world. Don't be quarrelsome, don't be looking for a fight? It's so often I find young guys in the church and they just want to fight about everything. And one of the first things I'll do is say, sweet, I'll fight with you. Because at some point you need to grow up and stop it. Correcting. Correcting. Not everyone is a Pharisee and therefore deserving of Jesus' wrath in Matthew 23. Woe to you, whitewashed tombs. Paul is saying here, the Lord's servant primarily speaking to Timothy and those in ministry, but let's apply it to all of us, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Here's the test. Here's one test. If you have a theological disagreement with someone, could I go and ask that person that you've had a disagreement over and you've had a back and forth, can I go ask that person if they think you love them and want their good? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Now, this doesn't mean Paul's got no spine. He says he's just put Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church. That's not fun. That takes a lot of opposition. But he's praying and he's asking that God that these people may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you know that the, the, the internet atheist, the, uh, which isn't really a big deal that much anymore, okay? they're kind of going out of, going out of fashion greatly, um, but the person that doesn't believe the true gospel, the person perhaps of another religion, if they have rejected Jesus Christ as the grounds of their salvation, as the grounds of the only hope for humanity, it says they're in the snare of the devil. Which means our response should in part be one of compassion. That's where that gentleness can come from. Because what's stopping you from being that person? grace and mercy of God. Am I right? We walk by grace, we remain in by grace, and we are always debtors to grace. What do we have that has not been given to us? It kills our pride. And lastly, and this is, I'm drawing out of the text, under this heading of truth, I think in this text, mostly from verse 19, There is a general optimism regarding the success of the truth and the church in this battle against error. A general optimism. There is an optimism in Paul's words while he's here in prison. One commentator says, heresy should not cause us distress regarding the ultimate faith of the church but we should be concerned for the souls of those who embrace false teaching and pray for their, their repentance. And why are we able to say all of this? Because when we look at Korah's rebellion, as bad as it was, as horrible as it was, that's newspaper headlines for weeks in Israel, as bad as that was, it did not devastate Israel. It did not devastate them. And Paul's saying, hey, Timothy... These false teachers and this, this error that you're, you're facing, it will not devastate the church at Ephesus. And therefore, we can say opposition doesn't ultimately devastate, but capitulation to error and denial of the truth is what does. And so therefore, there are some local churches who have their lampstands removed. They cease to be true churches because of their falling into error. But God remains faithful. And the church made up of many local churches we're told these words in Matthew 16. I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Who's got the power here? I'm optimistic about the church I'm optimistic about the spirit of the church you know in Christmas Day in 1814 Samuel Marsden preached the first Christian message in New Zealand and I look back at that with a general state of optimism look at what God's done look at what God's done Are there causes for concern? Absolutely. But every single one of you is sitting here. There's true, faithful, believing churches with the true gospel all over this city, all over this country, in just 200 years. And God will continue that work. That work will continue. let's trust in that in the battle against error. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we we thank You for Your Word, for Your Word is truth. Help us to to together be good Bereans, to look at the Scriptures, to search it out, to be convinced for ourselves of, of Your truth and might Your truth lead us towards godliness. Might it lead us towards righteousness. Might we desire it, Holy Spirit, work amongst us. And might this this church here, might we be looked upon as one where God has done a work and is doing a work and is not finished doing a work. As the truth of your work and your grace abounds. And Lord, as we, as we eat in fellowship tonight, might your face shine upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.